Michael. Hey, Diane. This is our last episode of the 2022 school year, Michael. And I will be honest with you, I'm relieved. (laughs) This has been the hardest year of my career, which seems kind of crazy, actually, given the previous two years where the pandemic closed our schools. Yeah, no, it's not just you, Diane. I think people thought we'd be in person, so things would be easier this year. But it's been anything but, as we've said multiple times, there continue to be lots of fraught decisions to make that have high stakes attached to them without simple guidance. And that's stressful for educators. And as we know, parents and the public are also expressing their views far more without reservation, which... (laughs) I think we should say like actually has both good and bad sides to it, but it does make for a very difficult environment to navigate. Uh, Yes, for sure, Michael. And um, I'm just going to hold those thoughts there for a moment because, you know, we say it almost every episode, but I think it's because we, we both can't really believe it. We had no idea that we would be hosting a class disrupted podcast three years into the pandemic. Well, I mean, for that matter, that there would be three years into a pandemic, but. Totally. I mean, that's just the reality, Diane. I mean, we we were both pretty sure we'd be done after our first season. So when you say you're relieved that this is the last episode (laughs) of this season, I don't take it as an insult because, you know, we both all of a sudden, you know, it's not what we expected. And we have regularly checked in with each other. So our audience knows, you know, asking ourselves, is there need, is there relevance to continue the podcast? But honestly, based upon what we continue to hear from listeners and our own experiences, class is still completely disrupted. And we we have not seen the changes to schools that we were both hoping the pandemic would catalyze. That said, we do both remain optimists. We do. And your optimism is reminding me that um, a number of years ago, I co-wrote a paper titled Dissatisfied Yet Optimistic and and then followed up a few years later with a second paper. That one was titled Still Dissatisfied, but More Optimistic. And, you know, it's funny to think back on those papers. They, They were all about the types of school models that could serve students in today's world given all of the outcomes our society needs and wants, and we've talked about those a lot. Um, and, and more importantly, these were models that are existing in our public education system. And it seems like we continue to be optimistic because these things exist, but the feelings of disappointment persist, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And we'll, we'll include links uh, in the transcript to both of those papers, uh, because I remember them. And I do think it's worthwhile just to, you know, emphasize what you just said, which is, there are, in fact, models of schooling that exist that have spread in certain cases that are so much better than what most sp- students are experiencing today. And yet, with that said, most places keep doing the same old thing, Diane. Yeah, Michael, more often than not, that's because adult interests get in the way of what's best for students, uh, which, which leads me into a conversation I'm interested in having with you, Michael. So, Diane, for listeners that don't know, I'll say you've been mentioning that something has been on your mind for a few weeks now. So I admit I am quite curious. What's up? All right. Well, here we go. Um, I guess the start, when, when we started our first summit school, almost, it's almost 20 years ago, if you can believe that, one of our core commitments was to create a school that was physically and emotionally safe for every student. 
And remember, this is 20 years ago, so that was the language we were using. And, you know, Michael, we were focused on schools that were diverse by design, as you know. And so we're seeking to enroll students from different races, socioeconomic stations, cultures, and basically any other dimension of diversity. And, And we did then, as we do now, believe that diversity is a strength, especially in the process of learning, but but only if everyone's able to be themselves in an environment that is both physically and what we called emotionally safe. And as you know, we're incredibly intentional in our schools about building environments where everyone can be themselves. And certainly they aren't perfect and they take constant work, but for a long time, our schools have felt like safe places, certainly physically safe. And it's felt like most of our work on making sure they were safe was emotionally safe was making sure they were free from bullying and uh, other things that create, you know, the feeling of, of not feeling being safe. And, and Michael, sadly, I feel different today. It it feels like it began with COVID, although I know that it didn't, and has just grown over the last two years, this feeling that schools aren't safe places. And my biggest concern, Michael, is that most of the conversations about what to do are taking us in the wrong direction. So before we go there and into that deeper strand, I I, want to just step back on two things. First, to acknowledge what I hear in your voice and what I see in your facial expression. The listeners can't, but I see it, which is just how much you and frankly, every educator in the country is holding and has been holding for years. Uh, and I, as, as you know, I'm really sorry that you might even have this feeling. You've talked about it a little bit before. And if I'm reading you right about where you're about to go, which isn't to condoning quote unquote safe places where people are sheltered from hard conversation, but instead would also say quote unquote safe places where people are in safe environments where they are able to have respectful yet hard conversations. Um, You you know this. I'm distressed that as a country we've landed in this space where that's become difficult. Second thing listeners might not know, but you and I, as we pick topics uh, and, and go back and forth, we're really conscious of and disciplined about not discussing topics that are, frankly, just totally polarizing and don't seem to have any sensible third-way options or, or rational middle ground solutions. And that, that strikes me because we've both refused to get caught up in some of the conversations and some of the polarization that has just seized our country. But and again, this is just only if I'm hearing you correctly, I might not be getting it, but it sounds like there might be a need on your end uh, f- saying, hey, Michael, let's dip our toes in those waters today. So I, I want to hear, Diane, more what's on your mind and how you're framing the challenge. Yeah, Michael, thanks for your support um, and your willingness to even consider because you're right. I mean, we are we are really um, diligent about making sure that we're talking about what's possible here and and like we like to say finding the third way and I, I guess where I'm going with this is that I'm worried about our schools being safe places and I'm spending an extraordinary amount of time working on and thinking about this um, and as you know I'm not the only one by any stretch I mean this is what I think every educator is doing right now and it seems that the solutions I gravitate to are very different from what I hear discussed and see happening. And basically it seems like 
the way I'm, I've come to think of this is it seems like everyone wants to ban things. You know, the solutions people have are, are for lack of better word, like banning stuff. And, and I wonder if I, I guess I was thinking, am I overgeneralizing? But then I started to make a list of everything that people want to ban in the name of physical and emotional safety in schools. And well, uh, Michael, that list starts to get pretty long pretty quickly. All right. So you've got my mind going because that framing both lands, but I'll also confess, confess, I haven't seen it framed that way before, Diane. So lay out the list that you wrote down. What are you seeing? Yeah. Well, um, I mean, let's start with the the easy stuff, the sort of low hanging fruit. I mean, how many stories this year are about banning critical race theory or CRT in K-12 schools? Um, the close connected to that, banning books. I mean, lots of books for all sorts of reasons, but mostly it seems to be around identity issues, so race, gender, sexuality. There's been all the work to ban masks in schools. And at the same time, we want to ban the unvaccinated people. We want to ban sex ed. We want to ban discussing anything related to gender and sexuality. We're, we're banning parents and visitors from school grounds so that we can supposedly keep them safe. We're, we're banning controversial speakers from college campuses and banning children who misbehave and banning cell phones. And I mean, yeah, that's just the beginning. That- <laughs> yeah, that's quite a list, Diane, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners will be able to come up with even more things that people are seeking to ban. I, I confess, Diane, as you know, I, and I talked about in the last episode, I finished Crime and Punishment uh, over the weekend, and I mentioned in the last episode that it had been assigned reading when I was in 12th grade, and among the many thoughts I had as I read it and finished it was whether it would still be read or be allowed to be assigned in today's schools, because just for example... There are several disparaging lines that stereotype Jews in the text, and I was able to read them for what they are and what they represent, and frankly, I found it fascinating and a a window into some of the psychology that I'm trying to get into by reading uh, this form of fiction, but I don't know if it's the sort of thing that gets a book like that banned these days. Now, look, there's some nuance on a lot of that, right, on some of these sorts of items based on age, perhaps, or... And, and as you and I would probably agree, whether bans on what's taught in school ought to come from the state or even federal level in some cases. But I think there's certainly a common strand here, which seems to be, I don't like X. My solution, let's ban X. But I guess what's made me uncomfortable with all these conversations is if an outright ban is ever a productive approach. I mean, look, you've been chewing on this framing more than I have, Diane. I haven't thought about it until now. So what are your thoughts? Well, um, they're complicated. So let's start first with the items on the list that seem to be about banning access to ideas, which is, I think, where you were going there. Okay, that seems like a good entry point. It's certainly something I'm seeing a fair bit of in both K-12 schools and college campuses. Uh, and the proposals to ban ideas, frankly, are coming from both sides of the political spectrum. And so let's dig into that conversation by thinking about the values, maybe, behind people who make proposals to ban ideas. Exactly where I was going, Michael. And let's just take, for example, generally people on the political right are calling for the banning of CRT in K-12 schools. They don't want it taught or discussed. And most often the reason given is because it makes 
white children feel shamed or blamed or, or even hate themselves, which could be summarized, I think, as this like emotionally unsafe. And we've also seen a ton of calls for the banning of controversial speakers on college campuses with students who are objecting to their presence, making the case that the ideas of these speakers create harm in, in an unsafe space um, and that they feel unsafe as a result. And as far as I'm aware, most of these folks identify with the political left. That's interesting. I, what's pretty clear, I think, from the outside also is that neither of these groups support the other groups call for a ban, right? So the calls for bans, they spark the, quote, other side to actually often, Diane, ridicule the side asking for the ban for the most part and talk about how, you know, banning this would be undermining the pillars of our democracy and language like that. So I'd be curious to dig a level deeper and think through each side's respective reasoning for not supporting the ban of CRT or not supporting banning controversial speakers. Yeah, Michael, as I understand the arguments, both sides will say that banning the ideas and information they want to to be aware of is, is like you said, I mean, I would go so far as saying it's un-American, right? I mean, take, for example, what is happening in Russia right now. Interestingly, the American people are more aligned on their beliefs about Russia's war on Ukraine than just about anything they've been <laughs> pulled on in recent memory. And for the most part, Americans think that the actions Vladimir Putin is taking, essentially banning any discussion or criticism of the war, or, or even calling it a war for that matter, is, well, I guess the word that comes up for me is antiquated. I mean, this idea that somehow you can just keep information for people, keep them in the dark and only feed them what you want them to know. I mean, it both seems impossible in the world today, given all the access we have, but also unfree. Yeah, it's that, that's a very interesting point, Diane. I mean, for a long time, I, I actually had wondered if the thing that would finally unite us as Americans, once again, relatively speaking, uh, is a shared view of a threat to our way of life and our values from a foreign country. And to be honest, I expected that would be from China, Diane, but Russia has filled the void uh, with its actions and then some. But I guess there's a deep irony here. We have relative unanimity on this when we talk about, say, Russia or China. But when it comes to our society, we want to ban things that we don't agree with. And, and look, I do get the instinct. I mean, you want your kids to be exposed to the ideas with which you're comfortable and you believe in, but you get a little, you know, sort of uncomfortable, a little squishy feeling when it's the ones you don't agree with or you don't believe in. And, and this de desire, it's almost a custodial desire, but it's one rooted in fear seems to be the root of the issue. But I, the other thing that is occurring to me, Diane, is it also seems counter to how people learn and that schools, in my view, should be places where we grapple with tough concepts, figure out our true north as individuals, and actively help students understand that people can see things differently and that those differences merit respect rather than persecution. And, and that's actually, as you know, a core argument in my upcoming book, From Reopen to Reinvent, on what I view as one of the six core purposes of schools, Diane. Michael, now you're getting to the heart of my instincts around how we address the reality that ideas matter and they, and they can hurt for sure. And they can create a feeling of unsafety, if that's a word. 
<laughs> and so Carry on, it's a podcast. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, it's not hyperbolic to need and want to address that. And it can be taken to an extreme where we don't expect anyone to have to hear anything that makes them feel uncomfortable or read anything or anything that make, creates discomfort. And, you know, there, there's this concept in the science of learning called productive struggle. And the idea is that it's incredibly useful for learners to have to struggle a bit as they're learning. And I always think of it a bit like the, the three bears, you know, the struggle shouldn't be so easy that you don't learn or so hard that you really can't get anything out of it. But if it's just right, then a learner really grows. And this is something we're always aiming for. And if you, you combine that idea with so many of the universal skills that people need to be productive members of society and also to be professionals, quite frankly, uh, let's just take, for example, the ability to cr critique an idea versus attacking the person with the idea and, you know, sadly, we don't see this skill demonstrated all that often in society right now. And, and I realize I'm getting in the weeds here, so, so let me pull up to a different altitude and simply say that a school that is designed to equip students with the skills and habits they need to be productive and successful in society doesn't need to rely on emotionally threatening content being banned in order to be a place that is safe for students. There really is this false connection being made between you know, exposure to anything that is remotely dis, you know, uncomfortable and safety. Hmm. Uh, this lands, Diane, as a framing for me that we should actually want students to debate tough concepts and see science, for example, as something that is never quote unquote settled, but actually is a process of proposing theories, testing, learning, and updating our models. And uh, you know, and seeing difficult conversations as ways to get at deeper truths. You know, you know, my mentor, David Gergen, always said that we need to learn that we can disagree without being disagreeable and that we can disagree with someone's ideas. We can even in certain cases view those ideas as dangerous, but also generally in our society, give people the benefit of the doubt and believe that they're doing things because as they frame the world from their standpoint, they genuinely think that this is what is in the best interests of humanity. And it is just that, it's genuine. Now, I'm getting, I guess, a little more philosophical here, but I think it's because the way you just framed the learning science is quite persuasive to me. But I also wanna just acknowledge, Diane, I think it raises another challenge, which is that, yes, ideas can be threatening and they can you know, start to come down a slippery slope a little bit. You know, You and I even had that acknowledgement around whether the Confederate flag ought to be banned in society or not in relation to how Germany treats uh, the Nazi swastika. But I think where these things start to get dicier, shall we say, is then when conversations around safety from different ideas and viewpoints start to slip into the realm of physical safety itself, Diane. And I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, Michael. Um, so I'm, I'm internalizing that the idea of banning thoughts, ideas, and books in our schools and, and across the spectrum seems to be clearly not grounded in our American values of, let's say, freedom and self-determination and curiosity, and, and nor are they consistent with the development of skills and knowledge and habits that will set students up to be successful adults. That actually feels pretty straightforward and values aligned to me. 
I think that you are correct that things get a lot harder when we are talking about banning things that threaten physical safety. Yeah, so let's unpack it a bit because let's start with the proposed bans that uh, are coming from different ends of the pl political spectrum right now. But, but frankly, I think similar to the banning of ideas, share some reasoning underneath them. So, uh, for example, let's start with the horrific recent mass murders in uh, Uvalde, Texas, and the uptick in school shootings this year across the board. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, there are a number of calls to ban lots of things. But let's start with the sale of weapons to 18 to 20-year-olds and to those with domestic abuse or mental health issues and, and, and even assault rifles. Those bans are all being called for right now, Diane, in the name of preventing school shootings. Now, at the same time, there's also a growing call to hold schools accountable for, quote, you know, not banning students or what we would generally call expelling students, right? Students who are threatening have made threats or have misbehaved in schools. And there's a whole group of people that believe that these students should be banned from school. We've talked about some of this. So you, you have these two ideas, essentially ban dangerous weapons and ban people. However, I think the same contradiction exists as in the ideas one. The people calling for banning the weapons are at the same time fighting the ban of students and vice versa. That is, those who want to ban the students are vehemently opposed to banning the weapons. And I guess it seems to me the reasoning used to fight the bans, once again, seems similar. So in the, in, in the case of people wanting to ban the students, people argue that students aren't inherently bad and they aren't adults yet. M most often those who are behaving in dangerous ways, they, they come from circumstances that are causing or creating these behaviors. And if we throw them out of the system now, in many cases, we know we're essentially setting them up for a lifetime of imprisonment or, or what folks call the school to prison pipeline. But I think not dissimilar is the argument around guns in and of themselves aren't dangerous. You know, people say it's disturbed people who are the problem. And so we should deal with the people who are mentally, emotionally, or criminally challenged and, and, and misusing guns, Diane. So you have this interesting dichotomy on both sides of it once again, I think. Yeah, that's exactly what I've been grappling with, Michael. And of, of course, we could, we could spend days unpacking the depths of these positions. Um, but I, I think the most important thing here is to realize that people who are on the side of banning in one instance are on the opposite side in another with really little detectable difference in the rationale. And, uh, you know, of course, as my board chair likes to say, that might be a, a BGO or a blinding glimpse of the obvious. <laughs> but, but I think the point is that folks have literally no ability to talk with each other about these things or to, ch this is the big one, Michael, to change their minds and positions, even just a teeny bit, which takes us back to education. And, and because you and I envision schools that give kids countless opportunities to practice the skills and habits that would allow them to do just that, to actually be in dialogue and conversation and maybe even shift their perspective based on that. Yeah, I think it's my head spinning as you're talking, Diane, on a number of fronts. I mean, I think this intentional building up of skills is not just the thing that schools should do, but in my mind, it is one of the core things we should want schools to do. And 
yes, that means that at different ages, they'll be ready for different concepts as they get more maturity to differentiate. I think, frankly, it also means that top-down teaching in a democratic environment like us that tries to indoctrinate might have the opposite effect, actually, as, as what people often uh, think it might. Um, but but I, our friend Sal Khan at the Khan Academy and, and uh, our friends at ASU Prep Digital are launching a new virtual school, Diane, which I recently wrote about, called the Khan World School. It's launching in the fall. And I interviewed Sal about it, and one of the things he said was that there's going to be a daily seminar where high school students in the school debate topics that frankly often are not discussed in schools for all the reasons you've laid out. You know, things like, will the Fed be able to control inflation? Will CRISPR change the human genome? And should social media be blamed for the polarization in the world? And presumably many of the other things we've talked about in this episode today. But I guess that brings up a really important question, Diane, which is if our schools today are not creating these environments where we can have these conversations, is it only new schools like the Khan World School that will be able to do this where people, and, and frankly, only some people consciously opt into them? Or is there a way you can actually change the schools themselves? Now, here's the transition, because we've spent a lot of time in our first three seasons talking about our vision for how schools should work and cutting into a variety of issues and questions that our audience, educators, parents, students, and we, you and me, have. But we spent relatively less time on how to help schools themselves innovate. We've touched on it here and there, but we've done relatively less on it. And I think, Diane, it's time for us to move to that conversation. And it happens to be an area of passion for both of us, this question of how do you innovate in an existing structure. And so for those listening, this is going to be the topic of our next season. We're coming back for a fourth season in the fall, and it's going to be around how to innovate in a nimble way in established schools. And it's a topic I, for one, and I know Diane is as well, really excited to dig in. So on that note, before we actually officially wrap up the season, Diane, and we try to decompress a little bit, I think we owe it to our listeners. What are you reading or listening or watching right now? Or is there something you're looking forward to doing with your summer? Well, Michael, um, like you, I'm really excited about the prospect of next school year and next season. Um, and it being about the process of trans transforming our schools and Honestly, I can't wait to dig into it with you. Um, and so I have two thoughts on summer reading for me. Um, you just brought up one and then a second that I was planning on. So th the first one is, I think I'm going to reread what an oldie but goodie, if you will, The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. Um, you know, I've always found it to be a really accessible sort of guidebook, if you will, for those of us who are trying to innovate and um, I'm, I'm excited to get refreshed and re-inspired and would offer that, um, you know, if, if I could go back to my old teaching days and give a little bit of a summer reading assignment for those who want to join us next, next fall, that might be a fun um, sort of primer um, for I think some of the good conversations we'll have. I am also going to spend some time this summer digging into the history and literature of India, Michael. And as you know, my son, Rhett, will be studying there next year. And um, I'm really looking forward to visiting him. And as you know by now, when I travel to new places, I try to always immerse myself in them before I arrive through my reading. 
Um, I'm super open to recommendations from anyone on that front. And so if anyone has them, um, and what about you, Michael, what's the summer hold for you? Well, first, let's say right into Diane with your recommendations about uh, good readings about India uh, and, and good fiction set in India. Uh, funny you say The Lean Startup because I reread it while I was writing my book over the past few months. I don't think I mentioned that in the podcast, but it was good uh, to do so. Uh, but as for me, Diane, um, so Anna Karenina is the next Russian novel on my on, 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 on my list. I'm going to stay with that. But um uh, but obviously coming out in July, my new book from reopen to reinvent. So that means I'm going to be spending a lot of time on that this summer. But the book I'm reading right now is uh, actually by my mentor that I referenced earlier, uh, David Gergen. Uh, it's his new book, his second book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And as I'm reading through it right now, it obviously has uh, deeply personal lessons uh, for, for, for individuals, but it's also reminding me of a bunch of other things that I want to read in the leadership literature of how do you motivate people and organizations to change. And given that that's part of the topic for our season next year, and we both have touched on it, I think I'll leave it there. And I'll just thank you, Diane, uh, today, but throughout the season uh, for your vulnerability and questioning and thoughtfulness. And I'll thank our audience as well for joining us with curious minds and open hearts in what's been a tumultuous several months on this season of Class Disrupted. We'll see you next school year in the fall.